Today on Hungry for Wisdom, wisdom is a pathway, not a park bench. Some awesome lyrics that you should sing with your kids, and big strong men take issue with the floral arrangements in the church foyer. It's episode 10. Turn it up! Welcome to Hungry for Wisdom. This is the podcast for people who want to know what God knows. He hasn't told us everything, but man, he has told us a lot. I'm Dustin, pastor of Grace and Truth. If you want to know what God knows, let's dig in. Today's episode is dedicated to You Medical. These guys are over in uh, Kennewick, and they are the the crisis pregnancy center in town. There's actually a couple now. There's also uh, Hope Medical. We should give them a shout out at some point too. You Medical is uh, kind of the they're, they're sort of the OGs of crisis pregnancy ministry in the Tri Cities. Been doing really great work for a long time. They get to uh, do the, all the medical testing, the pregnancy testing, the ultrasounds, the STI testing. They do the uh, the the classes for um, parents, the learning and earning programs. They've got uh, all sorts of stuff for you know for men's and dad's programs and everything like that. They want to empower people to make life-affirming choices and then build good God-honoring families from there. They got the gospel right. They got the mission right. And uh, we love these guys. So umedical.org, and you can feel free to refer them out to anybody who is uh, either experiencing or thinking they might be experiencing a crisis pregnancy. I trust these guys. You can go talk to them, umedical.org. Let's talk about Proverbs, shall we? Here we go. Proverbs 2, verses 6 through 15. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, and he preserves the way of his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Man, that is uh, quite a description there. In in Proverbs chapter 2, we get a description of a lot of the stuff that wisdom saves us from. So in the last episode, in episode nine, uh, we saw that all wisdom comes from God. And that was focusing here on, uh, on verse six, which says just, you know, flat out says exactly that for Yahweh gives wisdom. The Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So we took a look at that, how all wisdom comes from God. Everybody who does not believe in God and yet speaks wisdom is borrowing it from God. Now, as we take verses 6 through 15, what's happening here is that Solomon starts to tell us about what happens when we grab onto or when we receive, verse 1, that wisdom. We grab onto that knowledge and it saves us from some stuff that we really don't want. So the whole chapter is, it's pretty much one long thought, really. You know, it's kind of like this, you can see just comma or semicolon after comma or semicolon. Um, it, It keeps on going. I mean, really, if you were, you know, translating this out of Hebrew, you you actually could translate the whole thing as one long sentence. And it's this kind of like endless series of things that uh, in life, God's wisdom will save you from. So look at the words that are used. You got words like upright, integrity, justice, guarding, godly, equity, good, righteousness, you know, things like that. So he's extolling the the virtues of wisdom. We call this the Bible's 
moral vocabulary. Right? That was just a couple of verses that I gave you those, those words from. It keeps going. This is the moral vocabulary of the Bible. It's like there's a whole you know, dictionary of words that the Bible uses to communicate values and characteristics, and God loves this stuff. He loves it. So he says, all right, here are all these things, and he uses a million words to describe you know, what that character is like that he wants you to chase after. He says, here it is. Now, go get it. He loads up all of these you know, these nouns and these adjectives, these things that he wants for us and these descriptors he wants us to, to have. He, he loads them up in like, a, like a, a, a drum clip for a Tommy gun and just sprays them at us rapid fire. Like that. And then he says, all right, there's all the shells. Pick them up and put them in order. And so there's a, there's a moral vocabulary, a dictionary of, of words for morality in the Bible. And it's also like, there's, there's the opposite also, right? There's a, there's a dictionary or a section in the moral dictionary for anti-morality words. These things are the opposite of morality. So we see a bunch of those here in this section. Evil, that one's used twice, right? Perverse, leaving paths of uprightness, darkness, crooked, devious, and so on. So now I cut it off at verse 15 because we're going to look at 16 through 22 on uh, episode 11. But it keeps going with, with these descriptors. So you've got a moral vocabulary, and then you've got a section in that dictionary for anti-moral language. And Solomon, and therefore God here, wants us to be very, very clear on the differences of these. When you, when you have a vocabulary for something, you can process the thoughts. So it's like we can, we can put the thoughts in the right places in our heads once we have words to deal with, right? Because words make concepts understandable for us. We're, we're creatures of language. And so that's why God's just throwing moral language at us so that we can be morally informed and wise people. Now, another thing in Proverbs, like the, the more you read it, the more you're getting to see the, the themes that kind of, they lurk just below the surface, but they really clarify a lot of stuff. So one of the things that happens in Proverbs is you see this metaphor of the path and it, it raises to it. So uh, morality is a path. Wisdom is presented as a path. And that's why I said at the beginning, it's a pathway, not a park bench, right? It's not, wisdom is not somewhere that you arrive. It's a path that you take. It's the same thing with foolishness too. It's not like, you're not just a fool and that's it forever, you know, uh, sucks to be you type of thing. It's like wisdom and foolishness alike are different pathways and you can travel down those pathways. So this means a couple of things. Number one, wisdom is a lifestyle, not a status. You have not arrived. Your mentor has not arrived. Your pastor has not arrived. Have you ever been disappointed in a hero of yours, right? Or like a mentor or something? It's like, man, I really looked up to you. I thought you, do, you, you did the right things. I thought you made wise decisions. And now you've done something horrendously stupid or you have broken my trust or you've missed an opportunity or you've misinterpreted the scriptures somehow or whatever. We get disappointed in guys because the assumption is once they're wise, they're always going to be wise. And in every scenario, they will apply wisdom. But you got to remember, wisdom is a pathway, right? Not a park bench. They have not arrived. They're just well-practiced at going down this particular path, but they may not at any given point. So wisdom is a lifestyle, not a status. And also it's continual. It has to be constant. It has to be a focused pursuit because we're fallen creatures, man. And if we, if we lose our focus on wisdom, then we're going to drift off the path. And the, the way of wisdom is very narrow. So if you drift off to the right, you're going to be a fool to the right. If you drift off to the left, you're going to be a fool to the left. And so if, we, if, if it's not a focused pursuit of wisdom, then we're not going to stay on the path. You don't get to arrive at wisdom and then stay there. If someone is wise, 
doesn't mean they're always going to do what is wise. It means that they generally live skillfully in a Godward direction. If someone is not wise, they can move toward wisdom at any time. It's voluntary. To be honest, all of Christianity is presented this way. It's presented as a, as a journey, right? Being saved is a, is a state, it's a spiritual state of being. You are born again. You are regenerated. There is a past event which has resulted in your present status before God, and that's a done deal. But Christianity itself is presented as, as an active pathway. It's kind of like, I mean, it's, it's both and, right? And so we don't want to say that, you know, Christianity is only a pursuit and not an accomplished fact because the work of Christ is finished. But that's, that's one way that the Bible talks about it because that's part of the Christian life is the finished work of Christ accomplishing once for all our salvation, snatching our souls from the fire, and we will never be snatched from his hand. It's done. It is a, it is a status, but it's not only that. It's kind of both, but it's, it's important not to miss the journey side of it. So in the book of Acts, Christianity is initially called the way. I mean, I don't think it's until Acts, is it 11, where in Antioch, uh, we were first called Christians. Before that, we were of the sect of the Nazarenes, which pops, pops up again, I think, in uh, chapter 25 or 26 when Paul's on trial. And we were, um, you know, followers of the way. That was one of the big descriptors for the church in the book of Acts. We were followers of the way. Now you notice that's, that's, that's an active word. That's a journey word. That's a one foot in front of the other. Where we are at is not the destination, but we are on a pathway type of word. It, it, we, we as Christians were known as followers of the way. Now, of course, there's, that's a cool thing for unbelievers to be calling us because we get to say, well, like, yeah, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. So, of course, we're followers of the way because Jesus is the way. But let's not miss the implications of that. We are followers of a certain path. The difference between, between us and other people who are on a certain path towards whatever their eternity is is that our path is secured by the blood of Christ, so we know where it ends. But that doesn't mean that it's not a journey. It certainly is a journey, right? It's just a journey with a guaranteed outcome because the outcome was, was purchased and secured by Christ on the cross and demonstrated in the resurrection. So Christianity is a pathway. It is a journey relationship with God. It's kind of like when you get married and you, you, you're not just, you know, I mean, you are married and that's a state, a, a state or a status that you're in, but you don't just sit there and be married the rest of your life. No, you get to work. You go live some life. You go through life with somebody. It's a path. It's a way, Right? Same thing with Christianity. Once you are born again, yeah, you're born again. Finished, accomplished fact, you are sealed, Ephesians 1, with the Holy Spirit of promise. We have hope, and hope does not disappoint because the things which are not yet in our view have already been accomplished by Christ. So even though we have not yet been glorified, 1 Corinthians 6 and Romans 8 say we have been glorified. It's like, it's like as good as done, right? But that does not mean that we don't have a pathway to walk. We do. It's not a pathway of probation, it's a pathway of assurance, but it's a way. And so we have to follow the way. And so it is with Christianity, and so it is with wisdom in general. you got to put one foot in front of the other. And, and Proverbs 2 is telling us here that if you abandon that pursuit, you're going to fall off the pathway of wisdom. You're going to wind up being a fool. He says this, <laughs> he says, this is the way. When I, when I saw that, I was watching The Mandalorian, right? And that was the thing for the, uh, with the the bounty hunters, whatever they were called. They were like, this is the way. This is the way. It kind of drove me nuts. I was like, I get what you're saying. But like on the other hand, no, it's not, bro. Jesus is the way. Your little moral code where you don't get to take off your helmet or something, that's not the way. 
it's you know whatever it's 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 hollywood i'm not going to go off too much on that but this this you know christianity the pathway of wisdom living skillfully in the fear of the lord and following jesus christ who is the wisdom of the lord personified to us this is the way sorry mandalorian not you jesus so the the path to following god is simply that it's it's a path our success in this journey is guaranteed by the holy spirit who sealed us when we were born again through the washing of regeneration so the pathway is not not one of uncertainty but one of peace and love and active work yet active work with a certain uh, uh, an assured outcome but it's one that we have to intentionally travel because that's the way that God designed it. All right, how, I ask you, how do we intentionally travel the pathway of following God? Well, one of the ways that we do that is with something we call worship. So we're going to get into some this's and that's. And uh, the one for this time, this is a new segment that, uh, that I'm going to be introducing from time to time. We've got not awesome lyrics versus awesome lyrics. Now, what we sing as a people is very important. What we sing as the people of God determines what we value as the people of God, what we believe as the people of God. And if you were around Christianity in like the 90s or before that in the 80s, there was something called the worship wars. Personally, I think highly offensive that you could have something in a church that's referred to as a war, and that defines an entire era of Western Christianity. Big, fat bummer. The worship wars were about, um, you know, do we allow drums in church, or is that too much like the world? And some people were like, well, we can allow drums because, you know, there's nothing in the Bible that says we can't have drums. And then other people said, well, there's nothing in the Bible that says you can have instruments, in nothing in the New Testament anyway, that says that you can have instruments while you're worshiping God. So, like the Church of Christ, they would say, we shouldn't have any instruments ever. So all of their music is a cappella. And then you get people saying, yeah, but, you know, Asaph in the Old Testament, he was the chief musician in the temple, and his primary uh, primary instrument was like called a clanging cymbal. So it seemed like there were drums in the temple, and then the other people would come in and say, well, the temple's not the church, and we're a part of the church. And on and on and on it went, right? Interestingly, now with a little bit of, you know, the, the benefit of hindsight, this is ridiculous and I almost said hilarious but it's really not it was it was pretty shameful ridiculous because you had people saying no drums are not allowed in church because they're not part of the new testament as it is written in uh you know not part of the church as it's described in the new testament right but then these same people would jump on a piano or an organ which wasn't invented until you know 16 and 17 and a half hundred years after the apostles started the church through the holy spirit so it was, it was kind of it, it was an argument that was full of hypocrisy one way or the other right but the big deal about the worship wars was that it totally missed the point of music in a church to begin with. At least one of the major ones, which is to communicate sound doctrine and for the people of God to confess the truth of God with one voice together back to God. It's a teaching tool, right? So Colossians 3.16 says, you teach each other with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sorry, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You teach each other with these things. So teaching is not the only function of music. There's also beauty. There's also art. There's also expression. There's also, um, you know, uh, community. There's also exhortation. There's all of these things. But teaching is one of the primary functions of communal music in, in the church. Not all music. You know, you can have music that's there just for fun. That's fine. But that's not why we do it when we gather together as the people of God. So what we should be focused on is quality doctrinal content in our songs. And so what I've got today is an example of awesome lyrics versus not awesome Christian lyrics. We'll do the not awesome first. This comes from a song that 
is an older traditional one. Uh, it comes from, I believe, 1912, and uh, many people love it. Many older people love it. Now, inc- incidentally, as I'm talking about uh, you know hypocrisy in in worship wars, oftentimes people will not, not just older people, a lot of people will say, "Well, the new music isn't any good, but the old music is good." I give you an example. I submit to you Exhibit A of old music that is doctrinally not helpful. Check this out. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. That's a nice idea. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. He speaks and the sound of his voice is so sweet that the birds hush their singing. And the melody that he gave to me within my heart is ringing. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. I'd stay in the garden with him, though the night around me be falling, but he bids me go through the voice of woe. His voice to me is calling, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me that I am his own, and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Now, I'm not going to say these lyrics are garbage. They're actually on a poetic level. They're pretty nice, pretty well done, right? But they are not awesome. So I've described them as distinctly not Awesome. And not helpful. I don't think we ought to be uh, singing this in church if there are better options out there and there are better options out there. Um, It's not that we shouldn't sing it because it's biblically wrong. It's just not super helpful. Like, look, we get to gather together as the saints of God for a very short amount of time every week. You know what I mean? And so we got to make the most of that time for discipleship and for worship and all that. I just don't think this song makes the cut. Here's why. You could see this song as an extended metaphor of reading the word of God and experiencing his voice, right? It's like he speaks and the sound of his voice is so sweet that the birds hush their singing and the melody that he gave to me within my heart is ringing. Okay, fine. If this is an extended metaphor for reading your Bible, I could see this as maybe extolling the virtues of engaging with the word of God. But the song never actually says that and we would be leaving it to the singer, to the listener, to connect those dots. And I don't think it's connected firmly enough for us to be able to say, yeah, that's what this song is about. Then we're in a situation where it's like, "Eh, that's what it means to me, but it might not be what it means to this person. It could also, you know, some people actually, this is an argument that's been made over time, uh, is that this is about, um, you know, Mary Magdalene when she goes to the, the, uh, or no, this is about Mary when she goes to the garden, and uh, I I don't want to get the details wrong of their explanation here, when she goes to the garden and the Lord sees her in the garden, right? Okay, so there she is in the garden with Jesus, and that's what this song is about, but that's not true because that's not how the story went down the details of the song are different than the the details of that story so you know swinging a miss really what this ends up being is a very very touchy-feely experience-based relationship with God that is being extolled and prescribed here okay and that's not what I want people leaving our church with. Go to, go into a garden where there's a lot of natural God-created beauty and just feel your way to God. And then at nighttime, you go home. I don't want that to be our relationship with God. Not to mention, guys, not to mention that these lyrics are pretty girly, right? Which is fine if you're a girl. But, like, it's, it's so weird, man. When, when this came, uh, when this concept about this song, because we used to sing this all the time in my church growing up, and when the concept that this song was girly became clear to me, because I was like, I was like 16 or something, 17. I'm like, why do I feel so weird singing this song, <laughs> singing this song? And I look around me and I start to realize here are these big, strong dudes that are like lumberjacks, basically, right? They're mechanics. They're, you know, these guys are, they're soldiers. I mean, these guys are, are manly men. They got facial hair and they're singing stuff like, 
you know, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And then, uh, what's, what's this last one? Um, yeah, the melody that he gave to me within my heart is ringing. This isn't the way guys talk. You know what I mean? So anyway, this, I think this is feminine Christianity that we can just say is distinctly not awesome. Let's let it go. Let's not sing in the garden anymore. All right. Now, let me give you an example of awesome lyrics. Lest anybody accuse me of just being anti-stuff. No, no. Nay, nay. I'm not just anti. I am pro-awesome. Here's an awesome set of lyrics. These are actually some newer ones that came out. Um, these guys like uh, Matt Boswell and Matt Papa, who I think together wrote this one, but basically the whole Sovereign Grace movement and a bunch of other guys too. You know what? I should do a whole episode on solid, like doctrinally solid modern music. Anyway, okay, duly noted. Uh, they're, they're putting out some really good stuff these days. So check this out. Check out the, the exposition here of the character of God that would lead to the gospel being done. In other words, how must God be in order to accomplish so great a salvation for us? Check this out. What love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins they are many, his mercy is more. Yeah. Verse two, what patience could wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath the debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And then here's the chorus between all of those. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. I mean, that checks all the boxes, guys. You got the, you know, you got repetition. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. It says that a lot, but it's spaced repetition. So it's not, it, it can't be even accused of being what the Bible would call a vain repetition. Okay. And it's what this is, is an exposition of the heart of God. What love could remember no wrongs we have done? Like what, what's a love like that actually like? This isn't anything that we're familiar with. How about the second verse? What patience could wait as we constantly roam? You know, um, Verse three, what riches of kindness he lavished on us. And so what we're doing here is we're capturing the mystery of, you know, the fact that like God, God's person, God's persona is something that is completely unlike anything that we have experienced in any of these, any of these categories. His love is not like our love. It's a holy love. His patience is not like our patience. And it's not just a bigger patience than ours. It's a different patience than ours. It's a holy patience. What riches of kindness, like the stuff that God has to offer, we've never even thought in terms of what it is. Eye has not seen and ear has not heard what God has in store for those who love him. And so it's taken time to not only, like, actually, you know what, this song, this song accomplishes two things really well. It, it, it's, it's a tension between explaining what God is like and basking in the mystery of what he's like. You know, it's explaining it while saying it's mysterious. So this does a good job of that. On top of that, you take a look at the number of scriptural references here, right? What love could remember? How about the love of God? Well, there's John three sixteen right there. Removing our sins as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 139. Um, or 127, no, 139. Uh, verse 3, what riches of kindness he lavished on us. That's Ephesians 1. We stood near the debt we could never afford. That's First John 2. You know, our sins, they are many. His mercy is for Romans 5, 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, and so I could go on and on. I'm just looking at the sheet here and just kind of randomly, you know. I mean, our, our sins, they are many. 
His mercy is more. How about Isaiah 53? All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. That's it. So we got scriptural concepts with some scriptural uh, quotations or allusions to these scriptural passages that can be identified. So we're feeding on a poetic rendering of the words of scripture. It covers the character of God. So we're singing about theology here. We're learning who God is. And it's beautiful. It's just nicely done. You go back to In the Garden, you take a look at how many scriptural references are there. Not a whole lot. We're not feeding on the word of God here. What we're doing is we're feeding on the idea of an experience of walking in a garden with God. It's a nice thought. Are we making disciples at that point? Eh, it's, I think that's a tough case to make, right? Jesus says in John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So if we're going to be discipled, we're going to be made more like Christ. It's got to go through the truth, which is his word. And I think that his mercy is more accomplishes this far greater than in the garden does. So I bring this to you. I submit this to you, my beloved flock, because I want us to be discerning about what we sing. Shout out to uh, our music guy, Micah Nolte, because he's always super discerning about this stuff and picks really, really good lyrics to, uh, to, to feed on. So thank you for your leadership in that area, bro. And if you're listening to this, much love. All right, guys, listen, I'm going to cut it there, but the world is a messed up place, but it's okay, guys. We have a gospel that is perfectly suited to fix it. So let's get to work and we will see you on episode 12. Hungry for Wisdom is a ministry of Grace and Truth Community in West Richland, Washington. You can find out more about us on our app, social media, or at graceandtruthcommunity.com. We love him because he first loved us.